Any and all express shared or implied suggestions, opinions, actions, jokes, discussions, or points of view shared on the Indigenous 21 podcast are our own, hosts and guests alike, and strictly for entertainment purposes only. They do not represent opinions or beliefs on any background groups we might identify with, such as family, village, clan, tribe, gender, age, ethnicity, race, religion, socioeconomic status, sexual orientation, education, or career professions. Content shared on the Indigenous 21 podcast can and may be emotional or thought-provoking, and as such, may contain controversial subject matter. While it is not our intent to create environments that will cause harm to our audience, we advise that you feel free to stop listening at any time as these controversial subjects will continue for any given length of time. We believe in making the Indigenous 21 podcast to be a safe space for open, honest dialogue and or discussions about any given subject as they arise from our hosts, guests, and audience commentary. Discussions, information, opinions, or suggestions shared on the Indigenous 21 podcast should not be acted, attempted, or relied upon as professional guidance or advice. Yes, eh? welcome to the Indigenous 21 podcast, where we discuss modern Native narratives in the 21st century. I am JD, my Hopi name is Samivaya, um, and I am flying solo today in our new interview that we will be having with a fellow Native artist um, and also Two-Spirit artist. I'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. Anin, everybody. Uh, my name is Nibinakshik Southall. I'm a member of the Chippewas of Rama First Nation. I'm a graphic designer, an artist, a photographer, and a writer. I use uh, she, they, and he pronouns. I'm very excited to be on the uh, show today. So I'm very looking forward to diving into the subject today. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much and welcome. Being a Two-Spirit artist, Indigenous Two-Spirit artist, um, well, let's go ahead and discuss the label Two-Spirit first. Do you feel that the label Two-Spirit should only be reserved for those who are Indigenous rather than like across the board? You know, like how across the board people can be gay, transgender. Um, how do you feel particularly about the label of Two-Spirit? Well, um, I think it's a very useful label. I think it's really important that Native people have a way to describe ourselves that is rooted within our cultural backgrounds that, you know, we have kind of our own word and, and it helps us to find each other too, I think, because like, if you're looking online and you look up hashtag two spirit, mm -hmm. you know, being able to find other indigenous people, other native people uh, is really important. I do think that the concepts within our cultures and within the word two spirit are useful kind of for everybody to know. And it's good for people to know that there's other ways of thinking of, of things, that there's, you know, tribal frameworks that we can be looking at, uh, different worldviews. So I think that the concepts could perhaps be applied to other people, but I really think that it's really good for us to have these, these terms for ourselves and our communities, because I think as Native people, we do deal with some very different um, issues compared to uh, many other groups. Uh, so I think it's something that it's a term that's been really useful for me. Um, I do use other mainstream terms as well, but it is one that I feel very rooted in. I feel very comfortable with. And it's um, a word that I feel like I have a lot of flexibility within. Mm -hmm. So it's it's grounding for me. Mm -hmm. I think particularly when you're discussing native culture, um, you know, historically, in a sense, 
the the gender norms kind of flux tend to fluctuate depending on what tribe you're from what region you're from um you know i know that some tribes uh you know it's the women who are hunting um other tribes it's strictly the men sometimes it's the women who are doing the the planting and the harvesting other tribes it's strictly the men you know so i think using the label of two-spirit when it comes to like letting other people know like hey i kind of go outside of these boundary lines that you know society has set toward us i think it it really is important and vital that we you know we claim that for our community mm-hmm. um but you know there also is i guess a little bit of a controversial aspect in how you have you know the the hippie kind of like population of non-native people out there and how they're adopting certain you know um you know like sweat lodging or or mm-hmm. any forms of traditional spiritual medication you know such as like cedar or sage or anything like that they're adopting these for their own um you know which is its, its own topic and its own but like i don't know how often you have encountered a non-native person using the term two-spirit for themselves you know how, how do you feel about about non-natives using that label um and should they be using that label well, again, I think when I'm thinking about visibility and looking for community connection, and I'm seeking other people that have similar experiences as mine, um, I haven't really had that experience so much in person. But you know, when you go online, and you're like, well, I would like to find other people um, to follow, or, you know, maybe make friends with, I have seen times where people have used the term two spirit, but they are, they're not indigenous to the Americas. Mm-hmm. And that is problematic for me. I understand why uh, people might gravitate toward it especially if they're thinking of like, you know, you know, trying to decolonize their way of thinking, but really it is a term that was made for native community, you know, here in the Americas. So I think it can uh, confuse the issue. And I think because we have such low visibility, Mm -hmm. it's something that people really need to be mindful of because, you know, most mainstream LGBTQ things, it's rare to see native people included in that, you know, whether it's, shows or publications or all kinds of things right so i feel like it just kind of muddies things it's kind of like um it's like the word chippewa like i'm ojibwe you know which is also known as chippewa uh but when i'm like online or searching for things about my culture and i type chippewa in you know you're gonna get all kinds of things that have nothing to do like pictures of like white people vacationing pop up because they're over at this place that's been named yeah yeah, yeah. you know shoe or something (laughs) and i think it's it ends up really getting in the way of being able to connect with your culture. So I think uh, that can be problematic. I haven't really, I think people are pretty respectful about it. I think there's times where people be like, oh, I understand. I connect with some of those ideas. And I don't think, I don't have a problem with that Mm -hmm. or like someone resonating with some of the concepts, but I I haven't really had a lot of trouble uh, like in a person to person way with that issue. Hmm. Would you feel that using the label as a non-native person is a way of kind of like appropriating that term? I think in a sense, yes. Okay. Yes, because because of the context. Yeah. Let's go ahead and go into the topic. You know, once once we covered the the label, um, when did you start using the term more openly or like feel more accepting of the term or, you know, like even what was your reaction once you heard the term? I'm not sure when I I think it's been at least 10 years since I heard the term to spirit. OK, Um same about the same amount of time for me yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so i'm like trying to think of that i'm not sure exactly when i think in some ways 
Two-Spirit has been easier for me to use in some other terms uh, in some way because of the native aspect to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a couple of years. Like I feel like I've, I've been in and out in, uh, in various ways since I was maybe in you know college around 18, 19. I was like, starting to figure myself out. So I wasn't really identifying as too many things at the time. I thought I, I might be bisexual. Uh, so I was like kind of figuring it out. I had a lot of queer friends, but I really wasn't identifying as queer per se. Like I would be like, I have, I like this person or I, I think I'm attracted to this person, but I um, had a really hard time coming around to that because I was raised very religiously. You know, I had a, a conservative Christian upbringing, so that was a lot to sort through. And I really feel like it's been really maybe in the past few years that I've really kind of you know, gone more like, okay, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. And I'm putting that out there. And, uh, you know, a lot of my artwork has had uh, some two spirit subject matter, you know, whether it's just like little romantic, like mostly just little romantic scenes or depicting individuals, like uh, depicting a two spirit person, like a two spirit warrior. Um, So that's like coming out and I'm being just much more open about it. Um, But it's been a process. I think, you know, I've been out to different people, uh, I'm out to most everybody, but not everybody in my life, but the majority of people know I was on a, uh, a podcast with uh, Native America Calling where we talked about two-spirit art. So like <laughs> mm-hmm. out to like, you know, a pretty big audience there. But it's one of those things that's like kind of a complicated uh, journey. And I think now that I'm, you know, once I started reaching, you know, I'm, I'm 31 years old. And so once I started reaching my 30s, it's kind of like, well, wh- whose life am I living for? Um, this is my life, you know, you start to realize time and, and all of that and how you want to spend your life and thinking about living authentically. I think becoming, like entering my 30s, I just kind of changed a lot of the way I carry myself. You're only about three years older than I am. Um, and when I did come out, I did not openly come out even to family members until I was 20. And I think culturally looking at it with me growing up on my reservation up until I was 15, participating in all of the ceremonies and, you know, just just very, um, you know, the Hopi, traditional Hopi lifestyle, I guess is what you could say. Uh, the cultural influence from the society that I'm coming from is there is a lot of huge gendered expectations within our society not only within the spiritual realm but also because you know within domestic chores and you know tending to the fields Um, but even the the clan relationships that we have established within our society Um, my clan is uh squash is what we call our clan Um, and my father is corn clan so all of the females from my father's side of the family and you know they don't have to strictly be you know of course blood related it's any buddy out there who is a female who's also a member of the corn clan they would be considered my aunts and the grooming method of me growing up in you know in hopi society is that my aunts basically cater to to me as if um, a wife how a wife would cater to her husband you know so to say um so me growing up in a culture where it's expected that i'm gonna have a wife someday i'm gonna have a kid someday um and even within um protocol cultural protocol of like this is how the marriage system works and this is what happens after you marry a woman hopi being a matriarchal society 
once the man marries the woman, then it's the man who goes to live with her and her family, you know, and provides for her and her family. When I came out, I basically had a sense of like, since those protocols no longer apply to me, being that I know I'm not going to be with a woman and I am married now and have been married for the past two years, the, the cultural you know, protocol for me has like gone out the window. And and after I came out, I felt, you know, sadly, a little bit more of a disconnect from Mm -hmm. traditional, um, traditional, I guess, um, in a sense of like, this is how the family is supposed to function. But what happens if your family doesn't necessarily fit into that narrative? You know, Mm -hmm. have you had any similar experiences with, you know, within growing up and after coming out within your family? Well, um, like I said, my family is very religious. I think you know, a family member had said that uh, gay people would be kicked out of the tribe, which as I did more historical Mm. research, you know, you hear something like that and you know, that you think, oh, well, being gay is not native, right? Or, oh, I can't be this, right? But when I started doing historical research, um, I had also came across this book when I was, you know, maybe 1819, um, uh, that talked, uh, called Changing Ones, I believe. And it talked about uh, all the different uh, traditions and different uh, native tribes where, you know, they have people who are other gendered or in these different roles, right? They, you know, these different um, um, like third gender or fourth gender people as they termed it in the book. And there were so many stories, you know, throughout that. And for that, you know, that opened my eyes to possibility because with my Christian background, you know, while I knew queer people, I felt very, and I was very religious too. So I felt very like, I cannot exist within this paradigm, right? But once I found out about these other ways of looking at things, then it gave me a freedom to be like, well, this these this thing existed before European colonization. This stuff predates. This is part of being native. And for me, that native side was able was a way just knowing those historical facts was a way for me to allow myself to be myself more. Mm-hmm. Um and that was really important. Um I think, you know, in a contemporary sense like you know, a lot of our communities have, you know, internalized a lot of like homophobia, a lot of transphobia, you know, which is really hard. But I, I, t- I tend to think like, this isn't just it, you know, like, we don't have to accept that. And I think when you know more about the different roles or people that existed in history, like, um, it really changes your perspective. And you realize that, that there can be a, a way for um, two spirit LGBTQ people um, native people to be integrated into their communities that there can be this whole right like there's this integrated whole where all of the community members can fit in that and uh, be contributing to that right i know of um that we had uh a role called uh, or a term for this particular person called an agakwe so an agakwe um would be similar to like a trans woman, a trans feminine person. And, you know, contemporarily, uh, like gay men will also use the term as well. Um, and so that's like, this existed. And, you know, there's not a lot of historical references, but the ones that I have seen do indicate that Agakwa were accepted in Ojibwe society, that they were a part of it and it wasn't a big deal. There's one account of um, an Agakwa uh, Ozawende who married a chief and became one of the chief's wives. and it wasn't like a big deal to the like Anishinaabe people, um, hmm. you know, within that story, uh, the Ojibwe and 
potentially other Anishinaabe people as well. Like knowing these things, I do history. It's, it's hard to find references on everything. But like what I know about like Ojibwe culture is that we're like pretty independent in certain ways. Like we were semi-nomadic, you know, family is definitely important, but we didn't necessarily have some like superstructures like some people did, you know. So there's a certain amount of independence and, you know, being in the North like that, I think about how having super strict gender roles isn't necessarily the most practical if you're talking about survival. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, So if something is going to keep you and your family alive, like, yes, like it tends to be men that are doing big game hunting, but if it's keeping the family going, if a woman goes in and, you know, shoots a deer, like, that's like there's a flexibility that's kind of inherent in the situation um mm-hmm. from what i kind of understand about it i and think uh you know like how, how some how, how some cultures you know if something does happen to the husband and it's just you know the the wife with these kids you know like what are you going to do to support yourself and i know that there are some cultures out there to where like there's a tradition to where if something happens to the husband, then that wife and the kids are kind of like then absorbed into the family of like, let's say his brother or something like that, Mm -hmm. you know, but like not all tribes specifically adhere to those types of protocols where it's like, okay, your husband passed away. So now you have to do the hunting, you have to do the farming, you know, you have to be the the main provider. Um, And, you know, going back historically um, into, you know, I guess, you know, you would call it traditional folklore. There is one at least one example within every single society indigenous society that is out there of one person representing someone who transcends that black and white gender you know gendered roles and expectations mm-hmm. within the society in hopi we have hehewuti um which apparently i just i just recently uh, learned too is that uh depending on what village you know if you're a first mesa third mesa second mesa depending on who's telling you the story of the person it's either um a female who took on a more masculine role of like the warrior or a male who was dressed in female clothing you know so either either way um and someone who's transcending those gender roles and expectations. Um, but even in modern history, you know, we have um, historically, um, you know, no, well known within in, in Native America is um, Lori Payastiwa, um, whom we have Payastiwa Peak named after here in Phoenix in, mm. in Arizona, who is the uh, first indigenous woman to die um, in, in combat for the U.S. Army. You know, I, I think... Going back to also the comment that you made toward, um, you know, there there are ways that our communities have become more accepting and and do know find ways in order to harmoniously accept, you know, these people from these this particular label or from this particular category in order to um, contribute to society and to be a part of, you know, cultural society. Going back to my own experiences, you know, in in being a Hopi male, um, Arkivas, where where it's primarily primarily male individuals who are conducting these spiritual ceremonies in that setting, I guess you could equate it to like basically a frat house, you know. So there is, you know, what they would refer to modernly as locker room talk that does go on, on in in this setting, you know, um, and and then you know I guess people from a a socialistic point of view people when we do divide you know male and female 
Um, and I know there's some of us out there who get frustrated with that divide, like black and white. But at the mm-hmm. same time, when we're dividing based off of sex, male and female, like you do need that space in order to vent and to, you know, talk about certain things that you wouldn't necessarily say in front of the other group, you know. So that's what, you know, these I think like, yeah, that's what the overall purpose of these separation of like, you know, this is your place. This is your area. That's what that served. But at the same time, um, I, I do know of other individuals within my own village who um, aren't straight, you know, but and and other people know it as well. But it's 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 accepted. But that at the same time, it's not necessarily vocalized as much. And I think that's one thing that has hindered um, a lot of, you know, more indigenous youth to want to be more open about who they are mm. as an individual and in terms of expressing themselves um that that basically goes out of you know the boundaries within gender roles particularly to you know like fashion expression um mm-hmm. and everything like that but at the same time you know native girls are famous for you know within sports to athletes we have a lot of native girls who are athletes and it's perfectly acceptable for them to be you know ballers and you know wear nothing but a sweatshirt and jeans and everything like that but then when it comes to the males you know wanting to express more feminine um aspects of themselves then that's when i see the issue of you know it being a little bit more shunned or like not as encouraged um mm-hmm. because it's seen as a narrative as as a negative you know right yeah it's all those i think it's just all those internalized attitudes i mean you know, when Europeans came over, they were so negative about what they saw. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, uh, gender expression that would fall along those lines of somebody who might, you know, be in a particular kind of body, but is expressing femininely, right? Um, and I think just with, when you think about the boarding schools, you think about, mm-hmm. you know, forced The cutting of the hair and the, the yeah. cutting of the mm-hmm. hair, all of this stuff, right? Like a lot of that has been internalized in, in our native communities. But I really think we have to like look outside of that like as an Anishinaabe person, um, like one of our cultural heroes is like half spirit and half man, but like he also transforms, right? Like he he's a shape, he can shape shift. And, and um, I feel like within like the way our culture look at, looks at things, there's like the spiritual component, right? So when you're like thinking about how spiritually things might influence a person, the sort of dreams they might have, like those are legitimate things, right? Mm-hmm. Shaping your decisions, right? So I don't know, like I think... We do need to be better at making space for people. I feel like, you know, two-spirit people, gender non-conforming people, we're like out here and we're doing a lot of work in our communities, a lot of cultural preservation, you know, a lot of artistic talent. Um, You know, I feel like a lot of two-spirit people are culture bearers, right? And so I feel like we do need to acknowledge the work that people are doing. There's a lot of two-spirit activists out there as well that are, you know, they're very invested in their communities and trying to push for the best. So I really think that we need to make sure to elevate two-spirit people just as much as you would say, you know, uh, a beautiful powwow princess. Like there are many Mm. different forms of being native, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we really have to show that. And I think it's important for young people to see it because it is really hard if you don't, if you don't have something to look towards, right? From my experience, you know, there there are a lot of queer native artists out there. And and that is a medium that a lot of us have turned to in order to express, you know, 
are who we are, you know, as, mm-hmm. as an individualistic person. Um, but at the same time, how do I want to word this <laughs> without being too controversial? I feel that identity in terms of, um, of, of being queer, of being two-spirit is seen not as a traditional aspect of our indigenous identity, but more of a right. modern one. And I think that's where the main rift comes from. Right. A lot of us struggling with, okay, so is my queer identity its own thing or is it also tied in with this this um, indigenous identity as well? Is it a part of that or is it separate? And I think that's where our communities mainly struggle. And mm. that is in part because of colonialism and yes, the, yes. the brainwashing of the Christian faith which, you know, just history being what it is, a lot of indigenous communities have been eroded culturally due to Christianity. And there are so many tribes up there who are heavily influenced by the church. We even have, you know, a Native American church right now that mm-hmm. is kind of tied in with the Christian faith. Where I'm coming from in cultural experiences is that Hopi has been isolated enough to where um, the the traditional... Um, the traditional ceremonies are really separate from we do have churches within our community we have a uh, church of the latter-day saints um we have mennonites you know all these various different i guess you could call them branches of christianity out home but it's still pretty much separate from what our actual ceremonial practices within our villages it's not tied together at all whatsoever what has your experience been you know saying that you have come from a very conservative religious family like like how do you how do you feel the frustration of like this is what traditionally our people believed in and this mm-hmm. new religion that got introduced to our people kind of eroded that like what are your thoughts toward that I think it's it's like a hard conversation you know there's some things where I can't necessarily fully go there with like very some family members um, but I feel like with everybody else I'm much more open like I just I I kind of show like with if I'm drawing certain things like I feel like I'm incorporating nativeness into it certain native clothing certain cultural ways of looking at the world into what i'm doing just to show that they can i think people sometimes need to see it right Mm -hmm. so you can kind of bridge it and show somebody like this is what it can mean to be like 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 an ojibwe butch right like what can that look like and like i do it while being culturally informed while incorporating certain things um i think it's difficult like my particular uh tribal band um you know uh there's a history of um being Methodist for like maybe almost 200 years, maybe less than that, but it's been a while, right? So it's complicated. I I don't think it's always bad that beliefs are somewhat combined, Mm -hmm. but I do think people need to make space and understand that like two-spirit people have always been here. There's always been gender diversity. There's always been um, different ways of relating. or the sort of partners that people have, like that's always existed. And, and that's the thing where like, you know, I don't have anything against like somebody praying and feeling comforted by that, right? Like no problem there. It's when a person is seen as being innately wrong or bad or not supposed to exist. That's really wrong, you know? And that's see, something that- that's where my struggle is in terms of like, I guess, accepting you know, non-indigenous religious religious aspects, you know. Mm-hmm. Personally, my feeling toward, you know, just the history in general is that in modern times, you know, we point to religions like um, Muslims and tying their 
tying their religion to um, terrorism, which is like for the past hundreds of years, it's always been Christianity that has been, you know, terrorists as far as like indigenous people have been concerned, you know, as with their with their history. I, I guess really my main struggle is, you know, calling out Christianity in terms of like, you know, yes, there are some aspects that have positively maybe have contributed to our society at home to our community at home but at the same time it's also preaching you know you have to fit into this box and you have to you know not do this and not do that so it's like i don't know the the issue that i have with is just that form of unaccepted you know Mm. not being Mm -hmm. accepting of something that is that doesn't adhere to what their ideal aspects are right like some of that stuff is so innate like you know like if it's just i mean when I was like, you know, 18, 19, 20, like, and confronting and realizing, like, I mean, there had been signs along the way. Like, if I look back, I'm like, yeah, there were indications. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you know, I was falling in love with some of my friends. And I was just like, I didn't know what to do with it, because I was so religious, right? I was like, well, God knows, I'm not trying to be bad. Like, I'm, you know, I don't know why this is happening. Why does this happen? And I, I was, I was so, um, Oh, conflicted and confused I would pray and be like why is this happening I don't understand you know was and- it prayer in a sense of like don't make me be this way or was it just prayer in terms of like help me understand what this is it was all intermingled I think. <laughs> it's a little hard but I knew that like at the time I was like okay can't fit into the churches that like I was grew up in Baptist churches right okay and so I was like you know I had a best friend who we ended up finding out was gay and so there was a lot of things going on where I realized that there wouldn't be acceptance even though like he was an awesome person and I had always been so engaged myself right and there was something where my world started to fall apart right Mm -hmm. I mean I was I was suicidal not necessarily making a plan to do something to harm myself but I remember feeling like I don't want to live anymore. I don't want to exist. And knowing that that my devout faith brought me to that, that's like a hard thing, right? Like okay, so was it like not wanting to exist because I no longer am meeting these ideal aspects of what I'm supposed to be like? I think there's a... Well, when you're told that being gay is wrong since you're a small child, and then you you know you fall into that category... And you, and it's just, it's never, it was never something like I was like, I'm going to be a do this and do something like, no, it was just something that was there and these feelings were happening and it wasn't something I could change. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and realizing that, cause you know, you have the narratives like, Oh, it's something you can change. Like I grew up with those narratives that this is something that people choose to do. But when I started experiencing it myself, I was like, this actually isn't a choice that I'm making, you know, like these feelings are happening. It was hard because I knew that other people wouldn't necessarily understand. Like, it's very easy to cut someone off and be like, oh, well, that's an excuse. Oh, well, this. Oh, well, that. And I was aware of how that could happen. And so I think it was probably some aspect of thinking of of being misunderstood, of losing community, of having internalized homophobia, which I certainly did. And it's something I think all of us do. Like, I'm still, there's still things that I'm dismantling in myself um, that I struggle with. There was all that. But even then, though, I never felt like God didn't love me. I felt like God understood what I was going through mm-hmm. and had seen everything that whole time. So I actually didn't feel like separate from from God at that you know point. It was that 
I will no longer be able to live within uh, these communities in the same way anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, when I came out, it was after I had left Hopi, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it was a good five years after I had left Hopi. But, you know, my sexuality was something I com- contemplated a lot more once I did, you know, come down to the urban area. <clears throat> so coming from, you know, middle of nowhere, small community versus into a larger city it's the second largest city within a state um there's a lot more diversity mm-hmm. and i think you know going back to internalized homophobia where you're brought up in a certain culture and you know they have this certain perspective toward you know certain communities then it's like okay i know this is what i might be but like certain perspectives toward the queer community have been ingrained in my mind right. so you know like coming out was not necessarily. It wasn't the hardest thing I did, um, but it it prompted me. You know, I I was fortunate enough to have parents who really, uh, in terms of my albinism, um, they were quick to educate themselves on my condition. So from day one, you know, when I was a baby, they knew what protocols that you know they had to do in order to you know like protect me from sunlight and all of those things. And they taught me like how to take care of myself. Like you need to have your sunglasses on when you're outside. You need to wear a hat. You need to put sunglasses or sunscreen on. Um, So pertaining to my condition, you know, one, that was one way I already stood out from everybody else at home. So I did not want to add another label onto it yet. So once I accepted my condition for myself, moving to Tucson, I was introduced to, uh, you know, and and this is something that I struggled with um, growing up at home is that I hated the color of my skin growing up. So, you know, I was struggling with accepting my albinism at first. Once mm-hmm. I finally networked and was able to come around with more native people, a lot of Navajos also have this condition within their tribe. I was able to meet more kids around my age, a little bit younger than me, older than me. And, and like, there was like five or six of us, um, in the school down here that I went to in Tucson. So it was really cool to like, finally like, Oh yes. Okay. There's, there's finally people who like actually get what I'm experiencing and have either gone through maybe a little bit worse experiences than what I've gone through. Um, so then I figured, okay, it's not really a big deal anymore. Um, coming out though was a different experience in being that again, I did not have an idea of what the gay community was. Like, Mm. I knew I was attracted to guys. I had always been attracted to guys. Like, you know, there were some male classmates that I thought were cute when I was in grade school. But coming out, it was was a step for me to be able to go to a local LGBTQ youth center to get to know the community. Because as an Mm -hmm. outsider coming in, like, I know this Mm. is probably what my label is. But I don't know anything about gay culture. I don't know nothing about, you know, there's always presumptions. And those presumptions that I had growing up were negative ones. Right. In terms of your coming out experience, um, or were there any thoughts that you had toward the gay community, you know, before you came out, like negative stereotypes and stuff like that? Oh, I mean, for sure. Like there's things talking about uh, queer people being predatory, you know, which is such a harmful, harmful mm. idea. Um, or that, you know, people were ugly, you know, unattractive. Um, or, or forms of intimacy between gay people was gross and ugly. Right. That Those yes. are the comments that I heard going, growing up. You know, you had I, films like Brokeback Mountain, you know, just coming out into the mainstream media. But like hearing relatives seeing that and making like gross comments and like, oh, that's dirty comments. You know? Right. Yeah. And I definitely like within, I used to hang out with a lot of boys, you know, um, predominantly actually like as a teenager and, uh, you know, preteen. 
And there was a lot of attitudes like that were against males, right? You know, mm -hmm. they didn't really talk about like lesbians or anything, but there was definitely a lot of these attitudes. And I think they all kind of rolled into this one thing. I had a lot of internalized negativity toward female masculinity because of, you know, oh, you know, if something's too, like, you don't want to look manly or, uh, you know, some political cartoons when they would like maybe do like a conservative political cartoon about feminists. They would show these large women with short hair that were like screaming and they would make them, they would draw them in a very ugly way. Right. So there was all this sort of negativity around uh, women and desirability and all of this sort of stuff that I definitely internalized. You know, it took me a while to embrace the the sort of the beauty in my own masculinity and mm -hmm. to feel like this is something that is actually there's nothing wrong with it this is a beautiful thing you know i think there's mixed messaging like my family is very like pro strength right like i used to wrestle my brothers all the time growing up <laughs> i'd wrestle boys in the neighborhood like you know i'd play fight and like there was a time where i wrestled an older boy and my parents were like yeah i'm even gonna like, get him like yeah so so that sort of thing was never a negative, right? In that in that way, like having physical strength in the body or some of these, you know, like tomboy behaviors weren't treated negatively in my own family. Um, but it is hard when you have all these mixed messages coming through society. I definitely had phases where I didn't feel like I was enough of a girl, like, like I wasn't doing it right. Um, you know, not feeling like I could achieve that, like the expectations or be pretty enough or you know, all of the things, right? And like some of that stuff is so toxic that I feel like any person who, you know, uh, is socialized as as a girl, like deals with some of that stuff on some level or another. Mm -hmm. But it's particularly difficult when you are, you do have like a gender difference when you are gender nonconforming, um, you know, related to like negative ideas. Like there were times where when I was like going through puberty, I would think of myself as a boy. And like in, in some of our pretend games and play, right? And there was a time where I came across a textbook. It was like a medical thing that was just in the house or something, right? You know, just reading through this browsing. And then I came across this word um, that said something like, like gender identity disorder. Mm. And when I read the description, I was so scared when I read it because I saw myself in this description, but the way it was framed was so negative. Like, this is a disorder. There's something wrong with you. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Instead of, instead of like, I'm so glad attitudes are changing where it's like, no, this gender diversity exists and this is not a bad thing. Right. But you know, when you have those sorts of stuff and there was like hardly any information about like gender diversity, really, other than like a scare tactic where people, you know, um, like the way they medicalize things or the way they really frame it from like, oh, this man turning into a woman, like they make it so negative mm -hmm. and transphobic, right? So I think it's really like moving through all of that is like, it's, it's hard. It's definitely a challenge. So I do think we have a responsibility to, you know, examine some of our attitudes and like there's ideas that I've had to dismantle in myself too and be like, wait, this isn't something that's necessarily wrong or that's not a punchline, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a process, but I think it's hard when you're, you know, there's just so much negativity out there. It's, it's, it is hard for, for two spirit people, for, you know, LGBTQ people. Living in an urban environment versus living on the reservation, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's either 
um, you know, are you exposed to that amount of diversity or are you having to conform to this strict lifestyle just based off of the small group that you're, you know, socialized? Right. Um, Right. So there's different narratives to that as well. But also the, the fact that, you know, again, going back to like, it's more acceptable for females to be masculine. Uh, but then again, you do come across like, oh, well, if you behave that way, you're never going to find a man that you're going to marry or you're never going to find a man I, that wants you, you know? It kind of depends on the social group because like for conservative Christian circles, like being a masculine female is kind of one of the worst things you could do because you're not living as like this wife and mother, like this feminine wife and mother. You know, homemaker, yeah. <laughs> homemaker. There's some very, it, it really depends, like you say, like con- context, right? I think if you're in a big city, Yeah. I, easy flow right it's going to be mm-hmm. a much easier flow uh but if you're like in a small religious community like for me that was a hard thing to overcome that like so i had some educational materials that i grew up with and they specifically said like like gender not gender neutral clothing but like you know like a t-shirt or something right oh but i get it, you uh bah, bah, bah. unisex yeah unisex. like unisex being described in, yeah. in clothing yeah 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 and i remember that they said that like this is almost literally what it what i had read in this material educating me unisex is not of god hmm. and that's what i learned and so it was taught that you're supposed to be a feminine female and a masculine male and but but within the context of like a particular white conservative culture right now the, the one thing that was positive was like being native, we could read some of this stuff because I was homeschooled. We could read some of this stuff and be like, oh, they think men should have short hair. Well, but we're native, you know, so there was pushback, right, within mm-hmm. the family. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, there was these ideas like my uh, grandmother who uh, raised my my uh, dad, you know, she is uh, this very proper Scottish lady, you know, from a particular generation, you know, she would say that like pants were sinful. So like you, you have these extreme ideas out there and i think if you're within communities that have that those layers of negativity around ideas of women embodying any sort of masculinity that's really hard to navigate and that's something that i've had a hard time you know because like my brothers would get told and even when it wasn't that long because now they have hair down their backs right but Mm -hmm. at the time it might be some little shaggy styles or around the shoulders and you know sometimes people would say things um within like at church right yeah my my grand you know the grandmother um, would say certain things, uh, you know, wondering when my little brother, you know, cut his hair. You have to be a very strong-willed person in some ways to be like, no, that's stupid. Or no, I'm not going to do that. No, that's wrong, right? Yeah. Which can be kind of hard. social sometimes. pressure, too, is a thing. Uh, one example <clears throat> I can give you, too, is my nephew, um, who's uh, going to be 16. Um, but when he was, you know, in elementary school, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, we grew his hair out, you know, and it was something that he was proud of. And he didn't really mind all that much. But when he started getting a little bit older, you know, and children are more adapt to to recognizing, you know, those those gender differences um, growing up in Tucson, where it's predominantly, you know, a Spanish culture, heavy Spanish culture influence down here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we have he he had a lot of comments from his classmates, you know, saying oh he looks like a girl and and even just going out in in public with him you know um him being misgendered a lot and i think that's that's one thing too that um 
I, I also want to bring up is is being misgendered because I did before I came out I did have long hair uh, when I cut my hair that was kind of symbolic for me of that transform you know trans self transformation into like yes okay I'm I'm embracing who I am now and so that's why I shed that that hair off and it was really long it went down my back um, but mm. also being misgendered in public not that it necessarily bothered me that much but i just want to like make a comment on is it really such a bad thing that someone is misgendered you know and i think that's one thing that society mm-hmm. as a whole has is has started to consider um and it's it's not really a big deal you know like the in work environment that i that i am in right now um you know in in the teaching and the education world i work at a middle school in the education world, it's predominantly uh, female teachers. So the kids are used to, you know, addressing their mm. teachers as miss, 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 you know, miss, can I do that? And occasionally a kid will just call, refer to me as miss when asking me a question, you know, or, or oh. passing my B in my head. Hey, miss, can I do, you know, um, and it never really bothered me. And, um, but, you know, you get that one kid who's with them and they call him out. That's not miss, you know, <laughs> um, so getting comments like that, but then. I don't know, like, I've gotten more comfortable and letting them know, like, I don't care what, you know, Mr. Miss, I, I, it really doesn't bother me. I mean, I think it's interesting when you're bringing up the aspect, because like, why is it bad to be feminized, right? There's like, underlying sexist things in society, that's like, it's bad to be feminine, right? I mean, it's like a multi-pronged issue, right? Yeah. You know, there's like, there's there's misunderstanding of culture, but there's also the way people will try to put down by comparing to, to like female. Like I know when I was a kid, sometimes kids would say stuff like, oh, you kick like a girl to like boys, right? Yeah. And that used to get me so mad, right? I remember as a kid, I'd be like, I'm going to show them. Like, so I would like play really hard. I would be aggressive. Like some of my neighbors, like the neighbor kids, they were, they were a little intimidated by me, you know? Because I felt like there was that that um, that discriminatory element, right, of like mm. associating feminine with being less good at things, and that's like that's just wrong, right? As far as like how people perceive me, it's like kind of hard to say exactly what's going on. My um, presentation has shifted over the years. I've definitely kind of dabbled in a lot of different presentations, different styles, and things like that. When I, I do like art modeling, those would be like these sort of edgy high femme presentations because it's a photo shoot, right? day-to-day life, be very casual, have my, you know, cargo pants, used to longboard around in, in college. Then I moved here to Santa Fe and I didn't know how to integrate into like the work world. Like, okay, I'm not a kid anymore. Now I'm an adult. How do I be professional in the workplace? Like that, I was like, not sure how to do that. So, I mean, it'd be funny because it's like, I'd have like a little work blouse on and I'd be like walking to work with my like my leather boots, you know, that are all beat up. Like, and sometimes, you know, some of, there was some style oops that definitely happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was also surrounded by people who, you know, were uh, predominantly like, you know, cisgender and they're older people, mostly straight people. Though there was like some gay people where I worked as well. And I made the decision that, you know what, I'm going to be masculine in the workplace and I'm just going to do this. Mm -hmm. Like, and then also to incorporate native culture, because I always wear, I like wear earrings, a lot of earrings, like as a, a symbol of, you know, native identity, mm-hmm. a lot of my accessories, I'll wear, um, you know, native uh, bracelets and jewelry, you know, I have a birch bark medallion that I wear a lot. It's very important for me to, to represent indigeneity, right? And to also, so to try to express masculinity in a cultural way, but I also take in like feminine elements, masculine elements, and I kind of weave them together, you know, 
in both a native way and also, you know, like a more mainstream way. And it's like important for me to be able to do that to express, you know, myself in that. One thing and so I, I will comment on that that I have seen is native jewelers, um, where they now market just to native people in gender and in general, you know, and it's not gender specific anymore. At least with the, with the artists that I've seen, they don't mm-hmm. label it as women's earrings. They don't label it, you know, it's, you know, that's one thing as far as, you know, like cultural revolution I've, I've seen and that I've been proud of is, is having these younger silversmiths, younger earring makers, you know, if they do beadwork and stuff like that, it's, it's being incorporated a lot more into like, like we don't care what gender you are, but this, you can wear it. But going back to representation though, um, commenting on, you know, queer identity and, and being out there and being seen. Um, I think as far as my tribe goes that I might be the only, at least open, uh, you know, there, there might be someone else. I'm not saying that I want to be the only one, but I think (laughs) I'm the only one from my tribe who is openly married as a gay person. Like Mm. I, I, you know, like there are several other, like there are several names that just pop into mind who I could tell you, Oh yeah, they're queer. Oh yeah. They're gay. Oh yeah. He's gay. You know, Mm -hmm. but as far as pursuing what would be considered a legal, you know, marriage relationship, I think I have been the only one to like formally announce. And and it's, you know, I've been married for, for going on two years now. So I don't know, I, I guess, do you feel a sense of responsibility you know, with your platform and the, what, you know, your work field and the areas that you dabble with, do you feel a sense of responsibility um, in terms of not only highlighting your indigenous identity, but like some people would say like, it's, it's kind of like propaganda ish and you're pushing it forward, you know, but do you think it is important that we do highlight, you know, we are two spirit people. And I, I think it's like super important just to show that like, this is just the part of who we are and how we live. I think when I'm creating two spirit art, it's really for other two spirit. It's for me first and foremost, like Mm -hmm. working out some feelings and ideas. And it's really important for my own process to create art like that. Mm -hmm. But it is also very much for other two spirit people. Like first and foremost, it's for them. And when I've like posted something and people respond and they feel seen in it, or something resonates, you know, like that, it means a lot to me. And I do think I have a responsibility to show that side of myself, to show that it's okay to exist. Like I will wear ribbon shirts at functions. Um, and a lot of times, you know, I'm like one of the only like female people that's doing that, right? Yeah, yeah. It, does, it doesn't feel weird to me to do it though. Like it's something that I'd wanted for years. I uh, bought this ribbon shirt from a Potawatomi elder that lives here in Santa Fe, Kathy Short. And it was really awesome because her and her son were there and they're like, oh, wow, that looks good on you. Because I was like, oh, can I try this on? Mm. Like, you know, she was showing me the stuff that she had sewn. And I was like, wow, I really like that. Could I try that on? And they were so open and nice about it that it was really encouraging. And then like I have pictures, like some selfies I took of myself when I was first wearing it. And I look so happy, right? Because it was for me like this moment that I had been waiting for. You know, it was just like I just had to find the right shirt that was going to be right for me. And I was so happy and it was like, it was a way to have some gender expression there, right? So I feel like it's important for me to represent in that way, like wear the ribbon shirt, put on my jewelry, be decked out, like go out to an event and just show it and show that, that yes, this can exist. Mm -hmm. It's like a small thing, but I really think it's important because I've had other people who are on like that sort of masculine spectrum, whether they're like tomboy to like transmasculine, they're like, oh, that's cool. Oh, Oh, I want to do that. Yeah. You know, 
And I think it allows people to be themselves. Like if by me being myself and embracing the things that I like, it allows other people to be themselves. I think that's really important. I, I do think it's a responsibility and it's one that I feel like I've, I've decided to step in more, especially as I'm getting older. So what's one thing that you see as a major contrast between this new generation now growing up in this more, you know, aware society versus, you know, the generation where you and I are, are coming up in, where it was like we barely came out when the internet had just barely launched. There was not as much online connectivity as what right. we're experiencing now. And, you know, and I think because of that, I, I did come out at a later age. Had I had access to, you yes. know, Facebook and whatever apps you have out today, had I had access to the resources, you know, out home, if we had, you know, if we had mobile connectivity out home back in the day, you know, I would have been all over that. I would have been, you know, seeking out the community. And I, I really, I guess really it just does come down to, you know, in, in reference to me accepting my albinism, finding mm -hmm. that connectivity with other people who share that identity. And it's the same thing with being two-spirit and being indigenous is, mm -hmm. you know, you have to find your community and yeah. it's not necessarily like, this is what I'm going to be like, but it's like, this is my people and I can be who I want to be. And, and these are the people who will understand that and will embrace that and who will accept mm -hmm. that. I sometimes see where people younger are exploring these things and I, and it, it amazes me sometimes because I just remember how hard it was for me to do that. And I agree with you that having resources at a younger age, having more access to like some of these stories um, or even just to know that like gender diversity is normal, a normal part of being like the human experience. Right. And that it's okay. Like just to know that would have been a big deal for me, I think. I feel like I'm late to the game in some ways too, right? Even though some things may have been present there before, but like coming to this understanding, you know, I think that it's really great that society is being more open. I think, yes, there are some ways where it's challenging to change some of your perspective. Like some things take practice. Like it's taken me um, maybe two years to really get good at using they, you know, for other people. And now it's like more integrated, right? Mm -hmm. So there is a, a process where it's like, it's going to take some time and effort to do things. Um, but I think it makes sense, you know, like it makes sense to have gender neutral language. Um, you know, in Ojibwe, there are no gendered pronouns, right? So it, like it affects the way you think. But like, yes, for English, I really think that having more room, more flexibility is like only a good thing. Hmm. It's interesting how you say, you know, there's no gender, gender pronouns or anything like that you know references of language to use in Ojibwe but Hopi the only one I can think of and I actually thought about this too like is there really a specific language terminology or like gender specific the only thing that I can think of is how we say thank you so the masculine mm. form of accepting something or thanking somebody is kwakwai female mm. version is askwale which is way totally different I don't know how that derived or where that came from and I do need mm -hmm. to do my research on that now. Um, but those are the, that's the only word. That's the only phrase is just thank you in how you, you know, receive something. Everything else, right. to my knowledge, there's no specific, you know, like if you take Spanish, for example, you know, there's no specific way to gender rise mm -hmm. any other word within our language. You know, so I right. think it's really interesting that, you know, that got brought up. 
Yeah, yeah. And like, that's the thing. So with Ojibwe, like you don't have like, he did this or she did this. It's, it's basically the same term for whatever that person is doing. Mind you, you know, there are things around, um, you know, like your mother's brothers and those are your uncles. So there's certain things around. Yeah, like label specific, like this is the word for mom. Mm-hmm. This is the word for dad. This is the word for uncle. This is the word for aunt, you know? Right. But other around than that. Like, yeah. Or um, there are some things that tend to get gendered a certain way, like uh, Ogechida is usually, which means warrior, is usually understood to be like a man, right? So when people add kwe, which means woman, and do Ogechida kwe, that, um, you know, so sometimes things get gendered, like in that sort of way where someone might say, oh, someone's a fireman, right? Mm. There are words like that, but I feel like when you're just talking to people, I, I feel like that can, you know, be different. I was reading a book where, uh, it was mentioned, there was like a reference to some Ojibwe language where you'd have words like partner, but it'd be kind of based on the action, like this person you live with, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's, there's certain things where there's definitely uh, some gender uh, neutrality uh, within the language, which I think is like important, you know, like, I do think, you know, there's ideas of how language affects how you think, and like how you view the world, right? So, yeah, it's important to be mindful of that and kind of think about how that affects the way we're interacting with, with each other. Going back to the phrase that you used a while ago was that, you know, queer people being the cultural bearers of our societies. Is it because we not only challenging, not only challenging the, the current social aspects of what gender roles should be, but we're also considering and going back and reflecting upon our own cultural traditions, like what I'm doing mm-hmm. in terms of bringing up, you know, like, like social protocol. This is what happens when you marry a woman. I'm not married to a woman. So what happens now? You know, Mm -hmm. I basically, this is how I feel right now currently with my standing and being an openly gay man as a Hopi man, you know, or, or Hopi two spirit really is I have no claims or no inheritance to anything back in my tribal homeland back, back on Mm. my reservation Everything that we do is passed on through the female lineage. You know, I have my clan from my mother, but like biologically, if I were to have any kids, they would not inherit my clan. You know, it it, it ends, it stops with me. One thing that I think I'm struggling with currently is just, you know, is is there a point for me going back home? You know, and, and I'm proud of my culture. I'm proud of where, you know, th- this is something that has had a major influence into how I see the world around me, how I interact with the world around me. But right now, my main struggle is, you know, is is there a point for me to go back out home at some point? You know, mm-hmm. being that I do not own anything. I will not inherit anything. So so what's the point? <laughs> you know, uh, but at the same time, you know, for like cultural, spiritual responsibilities, Um, You know, right now, because of this year being what it is due to COVID, nothing really has been happening out home. So I have not gone back to the reservation at all this year. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would be um, for, you know, certain ceremonies that do happen throughout the year, because there are certain responsibilities that our, our clan does overtake during certain ceremonies. Do you struggle, you know, at all within your own culture and like, like I, I'm out of the box in this? <laughs> I mean, it's definitely something I'm mindful of. I think it's probably a little different in some ways because, you know, I live here in Santa Fe. I've lived here for the past so many years. So there's a, like an intertribal kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, You know, 
uh, I was attending IIA for a certificate program and they have, you know, sweat lodge ceremonies there. And I've wanted to go, but I haven't because when they've sent the email out, you know, they'll say, this is what women are supposed to do. This is what men are mm. supposed to do. Right. And I sent an email, you know, before being like, uh, so, uh, are two, is it okay for two spirit <laughs> people to talk? You know, is it a pick and choose. Can <laughs> <laughs> you know, I like I, option A, but not option B. <laughs> Right. So I was like, you know, nervous about it. And they said, Oh, yes, of course, you know, of course, two, two spirit people are welcome. Mm-hmm. But there was no real stated thing. Like, is it going to be a problem if I show up and I'm not dressed like how the women are expected to dress mm-hmm. because I am different, right? What's going to happen, you know, and I think that's where there needs to be more mindfulness around that, because uh, it just doesn't feel it wouldn't feel right. And there's like these power dynamics, right? So I really think like, spiritual leaders really need to be mindful of the spaces that they're creating and making sure it's accessible to everybody. Because mm-hmm. even if, even if these people can be perfectly lovely, and I know, I know that some other two spirit people have gone, but uh, you know, when you've had pain around gender presentation or things like that, or you've had, you know, you're supposed to be this way when you have that, it's, it's a very vulnerable space, right? Yeah. To, yeah. Where you're being forced into, into- conform conforming into a particular way that you feel uncomfortable with right so i do feel like you know there's i i know a lot about art i know a lot about history and stuff like that but i feel like there is a part where like some spiritual like group spiritual practices i feel a little nervous and some of it you know like growing up as a religious person on the christian side like i know what that's like right and i do worry that you can be vulnerable i know the way that power dynamics can arise i know that from that perspective and i you know i don't think it's just limited to like non-natives doing that you Mm -hmm. know i think that that could enter in in other settings as well and it's a very it's very vulnerable because you know you have people who are needy for connection and i feel like a lot of uh two-spirit people queer people you know in, in so many ways we're already so marginalized in society and forced into these positions of being disconnected or alienated, that it can really hurt you if you're trying to connect from a cultural side as well, right? So mm-hmm. for me, I have a little bit of nervousness around it. I think I'm at the point where like, I probably would be just willing to say something, you know, but um, I just getting older and becoming more assertive, right? But I, I do think that there has to be care in the way people talk about things, because even the way Native women are talked about, mm-hmm. And the sort of ways that they're elevated in certain ways, sometimes it can be very, very gendered, right? Um, some very strong narratives about, you know, like woman as a life giver, you know, being seen predominantly as a mother or, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah, or where, even commentary on like, you know, the beautiful native woman where it's, you know, physical aspects, you know, right. and, and looks right. or the right. native woman's cooking, you know, and, you know. Right. And so where it becomes, it, it, it almost reinforces like some very binary thinking. Like, you know, I would say there's ways that I deify native women myself, like, and I love my mother and I love my aunties and they really represent something wonderful to me. But I do think we have to be careful in the sort of narratives that we produce, like, in, and especially in ceremonial context and spiritual context, mm-hmm. because it's closing people off from a part that's important. Like, if you're keeping people from healing because you've created a gender boundary, like that's a problem. But know, at the same time, 
it's it's like th- there's always an exception made right in certain instances and you brought up mm-hmm. this earlier which is like a f- survival standpoint that's when mm-hmm. these is these exceptions are made um i did a video a while back on my youtube channel where i went around the um, herd show the last herd show that was last year mm-hmm. and i interviewed several native artists one of them is a um autumn basket weaver it's oh, a guy mm-hmm. you know and traditionally those baskets are weaved by the female in mm. in their families but what his narrative was is that you know it's it's an art form that is being lost within their community and mm-hmm. n- he said none of his his cousins who were me who were female wanted to take up that art form or wanted to take up that skill that traditional mm-hmm. you know form of of this is what we do you know so he he requested permission from one of the family members to teach him and she was like yeah okay i'll go ahead and teach you and um, they offer it, I think now, like they have certain classes in their community centers where it doesn't mm-hmm. matter if you're a male or female, you know, then you can go ahead and go in and sign up for those classes and learn how to do it. So right. in, the, in terms of survival, you know, like we're already giving these exceptions. Yes, Why should yes. it only apply to this instance to where it's like, it's going to be lost then. Okay, fine. Anybody can go ahead and do it. Why not just do it anyway you know some another thing good example too that i could be bringing up is with you know traditional any traditional gatherings it's always the 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 women that are in the kitchen preparing the meals Mm -hmm. and everything like that but if you're a single male you know let's say something happened to your wife and kids either she's no longer with you or you know maybe you split up and everything like that how are you going to take care of yourself you know then the men know how to cook and then right. it becomes known within the community that this particular guy is a really good cook. So then now they go ahead and invite him to, oh, you're really good at making this particular dish. You can make it. You know, that's right. an, another exception that could be given. Yeah. No, I've, you know, I've seen that. My best friend is from a coach at Pueblo and he's an excellent cook, you know. So there's like he makes, you know, food and um, I know that he's like made food for like other people. And, you know, when his mother had passed away, um, you know, her clan uh, people, like the women prepared, you know, in the house and everything. And one thing that was interesting, though, so I was sitting in the house, like the men were doing work outside, Mm -hmm. you know, as part of the, uh, you know, their funeral duties. And like, I don't know as much like all the cultural stuff, right? But I went because it was important. And, you know, I was in the house. And so my best friend, he went and got me from the house and was like, well, let's come, come help the men outside kind of thing. Oh, come outside. Let's, let's do some work outside. And I felt that was a way of him making space for me. Right. Mm. Within his cultural context of like, you know, allowing for that. And like, just the way though, he, he's also not very strict about like the role stuff, like in how he lives his own life. Right. And I thought that was like really important that in that situation, he was, you know, making space for me. And, you know, when you talk about like the artwork and how there's flexibility, like that's super true. Like, with beadwork, uh, um, Ojibwe beadwork, it was predominantly done by women, right? You know, it's a art that was like a feminine art and, you know, a lot of stuff with like the basketry, the beadwork, all of that. But we do have a lot of men who are working with these art forms now, like quite a bit. Uh, you know, there's a quite a bit of beadworkers that are male. Um, and it's not like, it's not even just an instance of where like, oh, this person was gay and thus like different and so we're allowing it. It's like, no, like, you know, you have straight men working in these art forms as well right so there's definitely this flexibility i learned that with with wild rice uh the manuman these would often be like under the women's purview right like this was like their sort of activity right like a Mm. gendered activity the government like 
kind of changed some stuff. And so then men ended up doing more of the agriculture work too. But like, so, you know, it, it impacted, government impacted that. But like the way Ojibwe are thinking, well, got to feed the family, right? So there's a willing, like you, there was still that flexibility, like it undermined some of the women's role, in, like traditionally, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you know, you got to feed your family, right? So I do think you have a very interesting point there where it's like, we're picking and choosing where we're allowing gender flexibility and change. And I think it's a very interesting point you make that like, well, what, you know, when this isn't being allowed. And of course, I always do question it because after so many hundreds of years, do we really believe that our religious traditions have not been affected by Christianity? Like, do we truly believe that? You know, I think that even with like some Ojibwe stories, you can see where like you you pick up a story like, oh, this was written down. I'm like, oh, but this is Christian. This is a a story from the Bible that's been reworked culturally, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so after so many hundreds of years, it's like, where do some of these attitudes, you know, come from? And I think people really need to think about that. I think when people are rebuilding culture as Ojibwe people, we have to be mindful of this because again, people can really essentialize in a way that I don't think was true for the past. I really don't believe it was like that in the past. But as culture is being built, you know, you have these very gendered narratives. I will say, though, like, I've been really happy because um, about this one artist, Ojibwe designer, uh, fashion designer, Delina White uh, of I Am Anishinaabe, like, these different two-spirit models have walked in her shows. A client of mine actually modeled a men's outfit, you know, for her as a two-spirit person, right? And like that to me is really where I feel like she gets it, you know, like, and it's really awesome because like she clearly knows artistically the culture, right? Like mm. you can see these really old references in the the clothing and accessories that she's making. And it sure does mean a lot when you have like somebody who's an older native woman who's like forward thinking like that. So I understand why people are defensive. I think people can be extra defensive because we've lost so much, right? Mm-hmm. There's been so much that's been lost. Um, there's been so much uh, cultural oppression. There's been so much where we weren't even legally allowed to do things, right? In a lot of instances. So I think sometimes people can be really touchy because, you know, we are talking about things that are very precious and important, yeah. precious and important to us, right? When you when you bring that up, one thing that does come to mind, you know, is in Hopi, you know, we're famous for piki. And I, I do see it a li- you know a bit of a controversy. Um, there there is a video you can see somewhere out there on YouTube where it's a man making it, um, but oh. traditionally it's something held by the women, you know, and mm-hmm. and that um, also weaving, uh, weaving is traditionally done by the men, you know, because of the spiritual symbolism that goes into those weaving. It, it's utilitarian. It's it's clothing that you're making, uh, but there's the meaning behind the different symbols that you're making. So weaving traditionally is a male thing. Um, a lot of the younger guys my age or younger are picking it up. They're still contributing to that, um, but they've you know in a modern sense transitioned into um, embroidery too, you know, uh, and and stitching, but. I have yet to hear of a female weaver, you know, to to mm. predominantly make a name for herself in the community. Um, you know, so so you know, you in terms of of cultural preservation, then we do look more at it from a conservative standpoint, right? Because mm-hmm. there's that fear of watering down something that was precious, something that we're trying to preserve, and if we right. change that, it's a sense of losing 
the the originality of what it was you know right and and i do get that fear and i can see that fear what you said was it's kind of like a a power dominatrix that we have over these certain realms right you know like because if we take it away from the females then what are they going to have left or if we take this away from the males then you know what do they have left to claim for themselves you know so i do right. get those argumentatives and like but and i think how you certain know, things can be controversial right no i you know i see that too and i'm actually you know i'm not actually like totally against gender roles i think it's just a lot of times a method of organizing like okay mostly these people are going to do that and mostly these people are going to do that okay but it's when there's no flexibility about mm -hmm. it is where i have a real problem like i'm like okay mostly women are doing this that's fine uh but what if i don't feel comfortable as a person how do i like engaging with this thing or maybe this resonates with me with the men but if they're mean about it like you know yeah. i think like the problem isn't that there's a structure. It's, I think, in my opinion, it's the rigidity of it. Okay. Because, because we always would have had people that were gender variant. Yeah. You know, there was always the point, exception. Yeah. There was always going to, there's always going to be people like that. Right. So there has to be room made in some way or another. Um, because it's just ignorant to act like, like this is nothing new. Like we've existed for thousands of years. I think most people come out straight. Most people come out cisgender, in my opinion. Like it seems to be true, like in a lot of different cultures and societies, but there's always gonna be a certain portion that just diverges from this majority, right? And that's just a part of things. So there has to be like, you know, roommate because it's a lie to say that it was only men and women or it was only straight people like See, that it's and that's just where we struggle as a two-spirit community it's not necessarily our issues within the system with the system overall it's our issues in that this that the system tries to eradicate our identity and mm -hmm. like within saying that we're not here i think that's you know that's the number one message to hit home is like some people extremists would call it an agenda that we're pushing for it's like, no, we just want a formal acknowledgement of this is mm -hmm. a realm in which people do live and, and, you know, how they do identify. And it's just that basic acknowledgement is all that we're asking for. Um, mm -hmm. and, and in that case, like, it's something we're still fighting for. So right now, yes, representation is important. Yes, mm -hmm. we need to be vocal about it because we, you know, we, we don't have it yet. That, right. that sense of acknowledgement within most of our cultural society isn't there yet. That's the thing is like these roles were different roles were eradicated by colonialism mm -hmm. and you can't be talking about rebuilding, rebuilding or decolonizing if you ignore two-spirit people. That means you're still thinking from a colonized perspective mm -hmm. if you leave us out. No, I'm, I'm with you. It's like we have a purpose and we also like I think as, as community members like we're very valuable because we do bring different perspectives. We do have different insights and ways of looking at things um, that other people don't. And that's there and that's valuable. And I do think that if you were just to look at the track record of just what Two-Spirit people have been doing and continue to do, like we're so invested in our communities in so many ways, you know? Mm -hmm. So if we believe in reciprocity, if we really do believe in healing community, it really has to, we have to be a part of that conversation too. I think that's 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 a good episode. I'd say I'd say we found a good place to go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you again so much for joining me. Is there any way that our audience can find you on social media? I am on Facebook, but a little infrequently. But if you look up Neven Selfall, uh, you should be able to find me uh, there as well. And then my website is neven.com. 
Uh, so be sure to check it out. If something resonates with you and you want to talk or connect, like just send me a message. Awesome. And again, you can go ahead and check out the Indigenous 21 podcast on anchor.fm, or you can watch the video version of this interview on YouTube at Indigenous 21. Um, look for our star logo on any podcasting. Yeah, I think we're on Google Podcasts now or on Spotify. So go ahead and just look for our logo, Indigenous 21, no space in between it. Thank you guys so much for listening, and thank you to our guests for being a part of this, this discussion. Hopefully it engages you guys in wanting to contribute, our audience to contribute to this discussion and narrative. And hopefully we can have you as a future guest as well on the other collaboration projects. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> we'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you for watching and listening.